This is Pain Reframed. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Pain Reframed. We are thrilled to have Dr. Jody Young on the show. Dr. Jody Young is the Assistant Director of Research at the Bellin College DSC program, which is going to be pumping out some really exciting, clinically relevant research over the next many, many years. She's working with Dan Rohn over there while she also completes her PhD. So she is very, very busy in putting out some great work. And we want to discuss with her today her, her recent article in JOSBT that discusses what we consider to be maybe the overutilization of surgery to address hip impingement, a discussion we've had numerous times, but one more case where over-medicalization and kind of quick reflexive maneuvers towards you know, invasive treatments continue to plague the medical system. And Jody just putting out some, some brilliant work in this space. So look forward to hearing her insight into not only this diagnosis, but that greater issue at whole and where she's going with her future research. So without further ado, Dr. Jody Young. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Pain Reframed. We are absolutely thrilled to be gathered here. Jody, thank you so much for carving out some time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, Jody, do you mind just kind of giving the listeners a few minutes, just kind of orient them to where you are professionally and, and where you're living and kind of what, what pots you're stirring and, and get everybody up to date, and then I want to jump into some of that research. Okay, perfect. I am currently in Phoenix, Arizona. And I'm working with the Bellin College DSC in physical therapy program. And I'm the assistant director of research for that program as well as faculty. Prior to that, I, I spent 10 years in entry-level education. And I actually am still adjunct for AT Still University, where I most recently was. And I also am on their faculty for the orthopedic residency. So I'm still keeping my hands in the entry-level education as well. And then I am currently doing my PhD through the University of Newcastle in Australia, and my focus is on lower extremity injuries and looking at the dosing of physical therapy. Prior to that, I did my manual therapy fellowship with Regis University, and where, of course, I also got my orthopedic certification. And so right now, my focus is on getting ready for the research curriculum with Bellin College and just really super excited to get rolling with that. And then continuing on with my doctoral studies as we speak. Clearly an underachiever. Thanks, Jody, for that. <laughs> Jody, can you, can, you, can you talk a bit about the DSC? So we have um, over on the EIM podcast um, with our colleagues, jo uh, John and Mark, we've chatted over there, but on Pain Reframed, we've never talked much about it. Do you mind kind of letting the listeners know what that program is and maybe how it correlates to, to research that's going to be coming out and maybe affiliation with uh, the two-year DPT models, anything you think is relevant for the listeners, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Yeah, so the of course, some of people will know that are listening that um, Bellin College now has the fellowship, the manual therapy fellowship, as well as this new DSC program. So many of our students who are in the cohort right now for the DSC came from the EIM fellowship, but we actually have several that came from outside fellowships as well. So the intention is, of course, as many people know, there's just a lack of qualified faculty, or I should say not qualified, but terminally degreed mm -hmm. faculty for entry-level programs. And so the intention with the DSC was to get people to the point where they could be qualified and have that terminal degree. So many people, you know, they get through their fellowship training and they want to do the teaching, but they necessarily don't have the route to go to get that terminal degree. So this is 
hopefully the the idea is people will roll from fellowship into DSC. However, they can come into the DSC without that fellowship as well. So there are some education classes in the DSC, and then there's also the research curriculum. And so I'm working alongside Dan Roan. He's the director of research, and I'm the assistant director of research. And so we have biostatistics, two of those courses. And then our intention by the time that they leave the program is they will have published a systematic review, and they will have done an actual clinical research project that ends up with a finalized product as well for publication. So we're trying to approach this where the biostats are going to be taught in a very pragmatic fashion. You know, many people go through the theory and the formulas and trudge through all of that when they're trying to get their PhD, but we really want people to be able to leave. I can say for myself personally, when you are trying to synthesize all of that information, when you run those statistical analyses, it can be somewhat difficult to then figure out how to write that information up in a way that's easily read by the reader when it goes to publication. So that's our intention is that our students are going to leave and understand that process of how to write that up. And like I said, walking away with two published products. So we're super excited for the collaborations that we have with Bell and & Health. And then also along with colleagues all over the country who are interested in being a part of this, we're getting them on board to be committee members and committee chairs. And there's just so many ideas that are floating back and forth right now for different research projects, along with some of the hybrid schools. We have some students who are interested in looking at some educational research. So we're just super excited for when we get those students. So the first cohort started in June. So they're going through the education classes right now. And then we start with them in August. And we've already had sessions where we're meeting with them and trying to get them thinking about ideas and throwing different ideas out for systematic reviews and projects and getting them into groups. So we're we're looking forward to the products that are going to come out from these these people. And then ultimately, many of them will end up in faculty roles if they're not already in those roles. Well, thanks for that, Jody. I uh, really appreciate all your work in, in that effort and, and with you and your team, because it's, a, it's exciting times where we're going to see very relevant uh, and timely research coming out. And I guess that brings me to why I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. And in terms of the paper you recently were the lead author in, Non-Operative Management Prior to Hip Arthroscopy for FAI. And you guys were investigating utilization and content of physical therapy. And before I ask you a question, I, I mean, I was excited and disillusioned at the same time when I, as I read through that article. And uh, so rather than me say, uh, why don't you give the listeners a little synopsis of what, uh, what uh, work that uh, just came out uh, in JOSPT? Right. No, I also was disillusioned, like you said, Tim. It was really interesting findings. I don't know if, if we should really be surprised based on what we know about FAI syndrome and physical therapy, but basically this was a cohort of individuals in the military health system, and they all ultimately underwent hip arthroscopy. And what we were looking at is what happened in the year prior to them undergoing surgery. So we were looking at how many people actually did see a physical therapist and if they did see it, what was what was that made up of? Like what was the content that they had during those physical therapy sessions? And so we had 1,870 participants and 1106 or 59% of those did not even see a physical therapist at all for their hip prior to surgery. 
So that was really striking right off the bat. As a person who is not and has not treated in the military, I guess I had this perception, and Tim, you have some insight with this, with the background of being in the military, but I had this perception that these people would have this access to physical therapy and they'd be utilizing it, and it just wasn't the case. 59% didn't even see a PT, and then of those who did, the median number of visits was only two, and there were something like 10% of the people that did see a physical therapist that had nothing besides an initial evaluation. So, you know, that, that right there was enough for me, but then we decided to take it to another level and we looked at the number of visits and whether or not they had exercise or what that consisted of. And so we found that only 220 people actually had six or more visits where they had an exercise procedure coded. And so that's just in my opinion, dismal as well. So, okay, we did that. Then we looked even further. So if they did have, you know, a total number of visits in their course of care, what was the breakdown and how much was exercise? And we found that the average was only 52.3% of their total course of care that included exercise. So really what was going on? Were these people all getting modalities? What kind of passive treatments were there? Again, I don't know if it was a a surprising finding, but what it said to us was, you know, what are we, what are we calling failed conservative management? Because obviously we can't say that physical therapy was part of the course of care for so many of these people. Yes. And I guess to maybe take a step back, and I apologize to listeners that FAI, for those that don't know, is femoral acetabular impingement. And when we look at that diagnosis, somewhere in the order of about 400% increase in surgery for that diagnosis. I live here in Colorado and we're, we're known for, if you go to the mountains, the likelihood that somebody will stick a scope in your hip, it goes up immensely. And it's just stunning. Just in the decade, the amount of increased surgery that's going on. And it always, like you've mentioned, Jody, you, we always talk about this, oh, you go there only after failed conservative care. But as you mentioned, what is conservative? conservative care. I was disillusioned, though you mentioned my military background. I I do think it's representative of, again, a bit, lots of diagnostic stuff happening, but not enough treatment happening. And, you know, I think I'm not sure if you guys were able to measure that. I think this is just reflection of the ease of imaging that's available in the military. I mean, it's so easy to get pictures of the inside of folks. And so we'll take a picture and then, oh, this looks like something we should make look different. So I'm curious, did you have any information on the diagnostic testing done in this cohort? You know, in this data set that we had, I didn't have that. That, I will say, moving forward in some of the studies that we're looking at now, we have all of that information that we are assessing because, of course, that's you're spot on. So in this paper, with doing some of the research, the background, there was a scoping review in 2017 by Peters, and basically they looked at criterion for surgery, and 92% of the studies that they included had used imaging as a criterion for surgery, but they weren't really looking at clinical signs and symptoms or, you know, what was going on. It, were they even reporting symptoms? So I would guess, and that's it's a huge guess because I don't have that data but I would in this cohort, but I would guess that most of them, yes, had some type of imaging 
prior. And that might have led them to where they just ultimately got the surgery first before doing anything else. You know, it's so interesting. I mean, patience is why we do this podcast. And it just this last week was was talking to a client, a young person in the 40s, but it had some imaging done and had of the hip. And the, the language around it was, as you might imagine, uh, the usual foul language about this being degenerative and this being unhealthy and this having osteophytes and the like. But anyway, the person was quite distraught by it, being young and thinking, okay, next stop is a total hip. And yet when asked the question, what is this limiting you from doing? There's a long pause. And well, really not much. I said, well, how's your morning pain and stiffness? Oh, I actually feel pretty good in the morning. I don't have much problem. And it's really not bothering me that much. And I let the pause continue and then began to ask, what aren't you doing that you want to be doing? And there was hardly anything other than hiking. And when asked why about hiking, well, I haven't really tried it because I've been scared to. And so it goes back that the label of even arthritis and osteoarthritis and hippo on this patient, frankly, was wrong because the patient didn't even have pain. (laughs) And yet they were suggesting this person need to have you know, implant put into the hip, which is just to me stunning that we've gone that far, that an image alone can drive a decision in a musculoskeletal problem. Right. No, I totally agree. And, you know, we don't, with this type of research, we don't have information on what's the severity and irritability of these patients. But I, I still think it probably speaks to what you're talking about. I mean, I can think of your story that you just told. I can think of so many patients that end up having a surgery and they really don't even know why they're having it. They don't even know what the surgeon is doing during the surgery, but they're just told that that's the right answer. And I mean, that's our job, right? To be able to advocate for these patients and and help them in making these decisions. But unfortunately, sometimes in the clinic, you're not seeing them until after surgery, which is the case with this particular cohort, right? They they just ultimately had surgery. So I think, you know, that that's something with residents all the time. I have those conversations and, and trying to just be the best advocate for patients because unfortunately patients are going to listen to the healthcare provider and whether or not the advice is good, sometimes they're just going to listen and they don't, they don't always know what the best answer is. So they're going to listen to the person who they think does know the answer. Absolutely, Jody. We had um, Dr. Mike Ryman on, on the EIM podcast at the end of last year and chatted a bit about this. And one of the things we discussed that I think is such an unfortunate truth with this particular anatomy and area is that the imaging is always uh, an obstacle. You know, people get an image of their back and, you know, they, they think, boy, that really looks bad. But at least like in the back, there's a little bit of, of room to work because you can talk about how, well, look, there's, there's a disc bulge two levels up as well, but we're not worried about that one. Like there's other things that you can kind of point to, to cast some doubt on maybe the over credit that, that we give the image to explain uh, current functional issues or pain, but boy, with the hip, like it, it is, it is that much more 
unfortunately seductive or alluring because you've got this great model of the overcoverage of the acetabulum, the, the thick femoral neck, and you can show with your hands how when that ball rotates in the socket, how those two things would contact and you know what, the, the thinning of the joint line. And it's just such a, an easy sort of sell, if you, an unfortunately easy sell in the hip compared to, I think, even a lot of other areas. Yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, I think you speak about that, his viewpoint, he talked about, I think, a, a study where 21% didn't even want to try any conservative treatment. Yeah. They just wanted to go right to surgery, right? But that's a, if you can tell that compelling story, right? Like you just said, show them the, what the anatomy looks like, and then they're going to think, oh, okay, well, that's what I need to do. Then that's the answer. So yeah, I mean, it's just it has to be a shift from us as a clinician. We can't do it all. We have to have those relationships with physicians too, which, you know, to take it back to this study, that's what also surprised me because I think, as, as mentioned, there's this access, well, supposed access in the military where I would think those relationships between surgeons and PTs would be closer than maybe the average private practice where I might work. Mm-hmm. Did you, Jody, as you were researching this, I'm sure at this point you are very much right up on the edge of this stuff. Is it still true that we have a relative absence of really decent long-term randomized controlled trials looking at surgery versus really high quality and, you know, decent length exercise focused conservative care? Is there, does, does there remain an absence of, of that data? Yeah. I mean, not look at all the studies that are out there. And I mean, there's a common handful that we're all familiar with, right, that are there. The The thing about this study that I think needs to be done for prospectively is looking at specific dosing, like studying the different doses of what you can do for a patient with FAI or even any different diagnosis. I mean, that's what I'm looking at with my PhD is more patellofemoral pain syndrome, right? So I do think it's lacking. I mean, there's attempts that are being made, right? You have, there's the FAIR study that came out from Bunnell. They got 30 patients and then they had some funding issues and then just over time. So they stopped with any further patients. You know, Lexi Wright, who's on this paper, she did one on conservative treatment for FAI for six weeks, a smaller study. Then there's, of course, the Lancet study that came out that said there really was no difference in arthroscopy versus conservative PT for FAI. But, you know, I think back when I graduated and I, I mean, I graduated not that long ago and really the only resource that I remember for FAI was a case series by Yazbek from JOSPT, which I'm sure the both of you are aware too. And that was my guide. Like that's what I used when I had a patient come through the door with this diagnosis. So I think we've gotten further, you know, Dan was a part of the Manzel study that did a two-year follow-up as well, but there was crossover to people that ended up having surgery. So I just think it still needs to be done. And I know there was a special issue of JOSPT in 2018 completely dedicated to this, and there were protocols for prospective studies. And so it's, it's happening, but it's just still not enough to guide our decision-making. 
You know, Jody, I'd like you to comment. I look at the the age range of that cohort. Again, these are young men and women in their early 30s. And, you know, we say we don't have the evidence, which we do need on better ways to manage this with physical therapy and other conservative manners. But when you look at the risk profile, there's not a preponderance of evidence that, you know, what do these people look like? Once you've broken into their capsule and surgically altered their anatomy. And we do that, to me, with a bit of arrogance to suggest, you know, the, there's so much higher risk in doing that in, in long-term outcomes. And could you share, you know, what are you reading in terms of these, again, younger and younger people having these surgeries and longer-term outcomes? Well, I think with this cohort, right, we were looking at the active duty population, so they are going to be younger. I think the conversation that isn't, there's the story wasn't told in this study. And it, I mean, I don't know if we can tell the story because we don't really have the information, but you know, it's possible that these people were maybe in a situation where they had to get back into combat or they had to go do something that required a heavy activity level. And so surgery was the only option for them, or they thought that was the only option because they didn't have time to put into a, a plan of care they needed to get back to their duty. So that's potential. It is just so much more common, like the mean range of ages is 24 to 37 for this diagnosis. So you really wonder what's happening, like you said, in the capsule, like what's happening that we just need to go in and surgically repair. Absolutely. You know, Jody, I want to I want to make sure for all the all the patients who are listening, we have a really high percentage of patient listeners uh, on this particular show. And I'm sure all of them are thinking, well then what is uh what is exhausting conservative treatment? You know, it sounds as though that, you know, we're not happy with with what we saw here in the article. So I guess Jody, I'd have you answer first and then Tim, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but you know, what do you think looking at all the research, you know, what would you consider quote unquote exhausting conservative care as far as length and content? Yeah, I mean, gosh, I wish I had the the answer exactly for it, but I mean, if you if you can't put in a minimum of six weeks. I mean, the studies, like I say, some people said they wouldn't even try six months of therapy. And in that scoping review, there were a wide range of six weeks all the way to 24 weeks. Or I mean, the, the ranges were far or wide. But if you cannot just even give it six weeks to see what can happen, to me, I think you're just doing yourself a disservice. So there isn't I mean, that's what I would love to keep studying because, again, that's that's what I'm looking at is really dosing of this. So I would love to see more randomized controlled trials prospectively. And let's let's find that. Let's see what it really is. But if but just right now, what I would say is that if you can't do six weeks, then there's a there's an issue there. And Jeff, if you know, if you're asking me as well, I guess basing it more on some of the case series and just clinical practice is, I think it's the intensity, the intervention. And when I say intensity, it's intensity of the discussion with the patient on framing what the problem is and what their goals truly are and what they're limited in and make sure that plan is focused intently on achieving those. And then whether it be a hands-on 
approach, an exercise approach, or intensely both, then it needs to be done at an intensity level that you expect results. When there are impairments there, those impairments in range of motion and range movements should be addressed rapidly. And you should see change within session and clearly change uh, session to session when followed up with intense exercise to the musculature around the hip and those things above and below. So I think that there's dosage and intensity and it's beyond just the exercise and hands-on. It's the intensity of the therapist making sure they're all in on reversing the person's current state. Because I see it much like acute back pain or any other thing. These joint quote unquote issues just go through these periods of higher discomfort and irritability, and then they go through lower periods. And the problem is we see people when they're in the higher periods. And even though the image and whatnot was looking similar during the low periods of irritability, we then assume then higher irritability, oh, oh, this is what is wrong. And that's why to me, the intensity of a therapist slowing down the decision-making process and being extremely positive that this is just a period where it's flared and we're just going to dial that back down is so important. And I think that's that's really what I hope to see in some of these, the, these future studies described better. And I, I just want to add, too, we don't have information about home exercise program for a lot of these studies. And then not only that home exercise program, but what's the compliance of that? So we need to empower our patients to take control of their own uh, own problems, right? And so they need to put something into it as well. I mean, I'm consistently talking with patients. It's, you know, I'm seeing you for an hour once or twice a week and Think of how many hours there are in a week. Do you do you really think that the one to two hours, yes, I'm there to help you, but you need to put stuff into it as well if you want to progress your function. So that's one thing that I would like to see with future studies is let's look at what the home exercise program consists of and what's the compliance. Because great, we can give a home exercise program and a lot of studies can say, oh, a home exercise program was given and you know they have the appendix and they have all the exercises in there, but then they don't record or report the rate of compliance. So how do we know what role that had in the patient's overall outcomes? Yeah, it'd be wonderful, Jody, to see some you know quantification of that. Look at strength changes over time to see if that loading was really having a, a demonstrable effect. So, Jody, what's coming next? We always love asking you all who are who are diving deep as you work through your PhD. Is this going to be the line of, of of track for you for the next couple articles? Are you going to take this further? Is that the direction, or do we have something else coming down the pipe? I'm actually going to kind of switch gears now and go from the hip down to the knee. So this is where I'm going to start looking at patellofemoral pain syndrome. I'm starting off looking at kind of just an overall descriptive study of what's happening. What do the people that have patellofemoral pain look like? How much PT are they getting? So trying to identify some dosing trends with that. And then probably going to start looking at some of the timing things that you're seeing out in the literature to, you know, when are they getting the PT? And and then, of course, there's the whole opioid thing, which is I'm staying in my lane because Dan <laughs> Rohn is doing a lot with that, too. But we we collaborate with with these data sets. So looking at kind of what's the impact of medication usage and then also, you know, what what is the impact of PT and what happens as far as do they get imaging later on or 
Are they getting injections later on? So there's just a lot to look at. Um, these data sets are huge. They're awesome. I, I can't believe if I ever had to look back in my career and say that I would love looking at a bunch of binary numbers, ones and twos in a spreadsheet. Um, I don't know that I would say that this is where I thought my life was going, but I was just getting super excited the other day when I got a new data set and it was ready to go and, and ready to roll with analysis. So I'm super excited to see what's going to happen. But with the next few papers, my focus is really going to be on that patellofemoral pain syndrome. Well, thanks for sharing that, Jody, And thanks so much for joining us and just sharing your thoughts. And we look forward to having you back on and with some of this new information you're telling us about. But before you drop off, could you let the listeners know how to find you and what, where to follow you, whether it be on social media or, or the like? Yeah, so I am on Twitter. It's JLYoung2. And then email would be jody.young at bellincollege.edu. Well, that was a great episode with Dr. Jody Young. Again, it really speaks to the element of what's required for those of us that are in the, quote, conservative care world of management of musculoskeletal pain disorders. We just need to be more in line with educating patients to slow down this decision-making process. And what we're seeing, again, is just high, high utilizations of invasive and risky procedures without at least an attempt of quality conservative care first. That clearly is shown in this paper that was discussed today. And I guess it's a call to action to all the listeners out there to really get engaged in your communities with your clients with your family members to say, slow this train down and let's begin working towards better health by first starting with non-invasive alternatives. So again, thank you so much for listening to Pain Reframed. You can follow Jeff and I on social media and please listen to our friends and follow them at isbinstitute.com. And I hope each and every one of you have a most excellent day. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.